0: Alright, 2 Samuel 8. So where have we been? Chapter 5, David becomes king of Israel. He sets up Jerusalem as his capital. Chapter 6, he brings the ark, this visible sign of God's presence into Jerusalem. So now we have the so-called throne of God on earth. We have that in the center of the nation. Chapter 7, David has this idea. It's more than an idea, it's a desire. He says to God, I want to build a house for you, a temple for you. And God says, no. I'm going to build a house for you, a dynasty for you. And so there's this covenant that David and God, that God invites David into, that God establishes with David, both with him and with his ancestors. Ultimately, we see Jesus fulfilling many of the promises that God makes to David uh, in that covenant. Chapter 8, it's just a, a list of battles David wins. That's what we're going to look at today. It's Seems somewhat random. There's no chronological sequence to it. There's no detail about the battles. It's kind of a roll call of the nations that David defeats. And I want you to look at it, if you would, through the lens of a promise that God made to David in heaven. God says to David, I'm going to make your name, specifically you, David, I'm going to make your name great. And he closes verse 11 by saying, And I'm going to give you, David, rest from all your enemies. And in the middle of that, he says, I'm going to make a place for my people, for Israel. To dwell a place where they're not going to be oppressed anymore. I'm going to plant them someplace where they're not going to be oppressed and disturbed. And so you have these promises to David that bookend this commitment to Israel. The commitment to Israel is is um, it's bigger if I can use that word. God works through David individually in order to bless Israel collectively. David's the bookends. Is it's the he's the bread and the meat is what God wants to do for Israel. So as we read chapter 8, look at it through that lens of God beginning to fulfill those three promises. Two to David individually, make your name great and give you rest from your enemies, and then one to his people. I'm going to plant you in a place where you can dwell in safety, where you're no longer oppressed. So chapter 8, verse 1, themes and subdued them. He took Methag Ammah from the control of the Philistines. He also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So he killed two-thirds and let one-third live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. When he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River, David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom, that's like a fort, uh, in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus. And the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. He took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Berethi, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, he took a great quantity of bronze. When, too, the king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who he had been at war with. Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold, and bronze. King David dedicated these to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he subdued. These are all the nations, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, king of Zobah. David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So again, just a look, again, just a, a list of battles, a bunch of nations that we don't know, does God make David's name great? Explicitly, we're told David was famous. People, nations bring tribute to David. That's a sign, a, a recognition of his superiority. Even this, 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 uh, this king, too, who brings them gifts, he's not, he's not being sweet. David defeated an enemy of two, Hadadzer. and is going, I don't, I don't want you to mess with me. You're too strong for me. Here, let me send you something just to show you I recognize who you are. I recognize your legitimacy. And he, he backs off. So we have God making David's name great. Does David get rest from his enemies? Yes, he defeats all of these historic enemies. There's a list of five of them. Edomites and Moabites. And you don't necessarily know where the, who those people are or where they're from, but they're all surrounding Israel. And David... Defeats all of them, and God gives rest. What about the fulfillment of this promise to his people? To give them a place where they can dwell in safety. This next slide, you can kind of see on that map. So, in honor of Chad Almy, we'll call, call that inside color salmon. That's, or that's where Saul's kingdom. And then, um, what do we want to call that green? Somebody? Olive? we'll go olive green there somebody said avocado i've never heard that used as a color before it is a very mushy food that i would tend to avoid <laughs> the green is everything david takes and you can see from the to the north and the south and the east and the west he defeats enemies israel goes so back in genesis 15 this is genesis 15 god says to Abraham, I'm going to give you everything from the Wadi, W-A-D-I, of Egypt, that's maybe this river, it's not the Nile, I think this is called the Aurora, A-R-O-E-R, river, all the way up to the Euphrates, that's way up there at the top. I'm going to give you all of that. And David doesn't get all of that, but he gets really close. And so David is not, he's not just defeating enemies, he's taking land that had been given to the Israelites, promised to the Israelites by God... That through their disobedience, in some cases, and the aggression of other nations, in some cases, have been taken from them. There's no. Uh, we went out of town last week, and when you cross from Georgia to Alabama and Alabama to Florida, like there's, there's a recognition of those boundaries. The governor of Georgia doesn't mess with the affairs of Alabama. The governor of Alabama doesn't mess with the affairs of Florida. There's no, there's no recognition of boundaries. Israel, that land, is highly desirable, and everybody's fighting for it. So either you're strong enough to defend or you're being taken over. That's it. There's no, there's no sense of well, this is their land and so we're going to keep our hands off. It's this is not mine and I'm going to take it. And so what David is doing is he's expanding the borders of Israel back to what God originally intended Israel to have. And he's creating safety for them, a place where they can dwell, where they cannot be disturbed. The nations are either defeated or they recognize Israel's superiority and they say, we're not going to mess with you. We recognize you are stronger than us and we're going to pay you to stay away from us. That's what tribute is. We're going to pay you to leave us alone. That's what they're doing with tribute. And so David does that to the north and the south and the east and the west. He's expanded the borders. Of Israel. God is fulfilling this promise to give his people a place where they cannot be oppressed. Dive into the details real quick before maybe we make one point of application. The two phrases, two statements in chapter 8 that seem to give people the most heartburn one is David laying men out and using a length of rope and just stretching it out and killing two out of every three people. Is he a butcher? Is he cruel? Is he savage? Why would he do that? So, um, David is a man after God's own heart, and he's also a man of his own time. And I would encourage you, not just with David, with everyone you read in the Old Testament, to judge them accordingly. So, the Sermon on the Mount was spoken a thousand years after David died. He never heard, turn the other cheek. He never heard, pray for those who persecute you. He never heard, love your enemies. He He never heard, bless those who curse you. He never heard any of that. What he heard was an eye for an eye. That's what he knew. And according to the conventions of the day, if my army beats your army, then your guys that I capture, I either kill every one of them or I mutilate them and sell them into slavery in a foreign country. Think about Samson. His eyes get gouged out and he's put in, uh, forced to, to, to do manual labor. The idea is I've beaten you And I don't want to give you any chance to reform an army and fight me again. I've already beat you once. So I'm either going to kill you, or I'm going to maim you and send you to a foreign country. So David allowing a third of the Moabites to live, you could see as an expression of compassion during the time. Doesn't meet meet the standard of Jesus, but David didn't have the standard of Jesus. What David had was an eye for an eye. And what he did, people who would have gladly killed him if they had an opportunity, he said... I'm going to let a third of you live. You can still choose to see him as cruel and savage. I would tend to say it's an expression of compassion and grace on David's part. Mercy, maybe, more than grace. Mercy on David's part that he extends to these guys. There's actually a biblical principle. You can see it in Luke 12. God judges people based on what they know, not based on what they don't. God judges people based on the light or the revelation that they have. You can also see that in Romans 2. There's a, a common objection uh, to Christianity. What about those who've never heard of Jesus? is the only way. What about the person in the tribe in the middle of the jungle who never hears the gospel and they die? Is God going to condemn them to hell forever? They're not judged based on what they don't know. They're judged based on what they do. That's Romans 1.20. There's some amount of revelation that's been available to everybody. Creation in our conscience says there's something other than me. There's someone other than me, there's someone bigger than me out there, because I didn't make any of this. And there's something within me that, 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 that leads me in the direction of right and wrong, not flawlessly, but I have an internal sense of that. At a minimum, everyone has those two things, creation and conscience. The desire is for everyone to have the gospel as well, but for those who don't have the gospel, they're not going to be judged the way y'all are who've heard it. And for those of us who've heard it a thousand times, much is expected of us. So just and that's a a bit of a tangent, but when you're thinking Old Testament, when you're thinking about people who have not yet had access to the gospel, is God cruel for judging them? He's not. He judges them based on the revelation that has been given to them. He's not going to hold them responsible for our disobedience, for us not getting to them. He's not going to make them pay because we didn't get there or because we chose not to go. Does that make sense? So I would choose to look at David in the same way. Someone pre-Jesus... Judge him based on the revelation that he had. We know he doesn't live up to the standard of Christ. But he didn't have that standard at the time. The second thing that gives people heartburn is hamstringing horses. People think that's just cruel. Why would you do that to a horse? There's actually a place in Joshua 7 where God tells Joshua, hamstring all the horses. And it sounds really cruel and it probably hurt. Um, I would give you maybe a couple of things to think about. One, God's not cruel. So how do we understand that? in a way that makes sense, that does justice to what it says. David hamstrung the horses. You can hamstring, I'm not an expert, but I understand you can hamstring horses in two ways. One, you can make it so they can't walk at all, which means they starve to death because they can't get food. That's cruel. And the other is you can nick their tendon in a way that they're no longer suitable to carry uh, heavy things. They couldn't pull a war chariot, but they would still be able to walk around. They could still help with farming. They, you could probably ride one. But they're useless in war. And I would think that's probably what God commanded Joshua to do and what David did. Maybe in keeping with Joshua's example. Why would God ask David to do that at all? What's the what, like, Why? It seems needless. In Deuteronomy 17, the kings, Moses, says about future kings of Israel, make sure they don't acquire a lot of horses. Why does that matter? Because God wants his people to rely on him. It would be very easy, so... It's hard for us to imagine, but a chariot a chariot being pulled by a horse, that is the pinnacle of military technology of the time. That's the best. Like, whatever our best thing is, our best fighter jet, our best tank, our best, whatever our best is, that's a horse pulling a chariot in 1000 BC when David is fighting. It's the best thing they've got. revolutionized warfare and for David to willingly and voluntarily as a warrior king who has people pressing him on every side to say, you know what, I don't want it. I'm going to make it so we can't even use them. We're not even going to be tempted to use them. We're going to make it so these horses couldn't pull the chariots even if we wanted them to. Think about the level of faith that takes in the Lord. As a warrior king, now these are real battles. He's not playing a video game. People are coming after him with swords and with bows and arrows and with these horses on chariots and they want to kill him. That's all they want to do. They will torture him and then they will kill him. And what he says in the face of that reality is, you've given me one of the best weapons that I can use but I'm not going to trust it. I'm going to make it so I'm not even tempted. I'm going to hamstring these horses so if push ever comes to shove, I, I can't use them anyway. Think about that. What does that say to you? Here's Psalm 20, really quick. It's a great Psalm. May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. I guess that's bad. All the Psalms are really good. I'm not saying some are bad. I just like this one. May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May God send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May God give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Those people who trust in chariots and horses, they're brought to their knees and they stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when you call. You see the the heart. You see those are the words, and then you see the actions that correspond to those words. We're not using the horses. We're not we're not going to use the best weapon that's out there. We're trusting in the Lord. We're not going to trust in our military might. There's a point at the end of David's life. He needlessly takes a census, and he is judged for it. He's putting his faith in the number of guys he's got in the army. Here we see at this point in his life, he's saying, "I'm not putting." Trust in my arsenal, only in the Lord. You maybe can think of a place in your own life where you're tempted to trust in something. And what would it look like for you, kind of metaphorically, to hamstring those horses? Verse 15, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. That's a big phrase, just and right. That, Without getting technical, just know that that phrase, just and right, with those particular Hebrew words, are used of God's rule and reign. They're used of the Messiah's rule and reign, and they're used of David's rule and reign. That's lofty company for him. He is seen as the ideal king of Israel. Joab was over the army. Jehoshaphat was the recorder. That literally is the remembrancer. So he's probably the guy that, like, he kept the scrapbook, kept the archives, also, press secretary. He would have communicated with the other nations. Zadok and Ahimelech were priests. Saraiah was secretary, so would have worked with Jehoshaphat. Benaiah was over the Karathites and Pelathites. That was David's personal bodyguard. Those were non-Israelites who were close to him, protected him. And David's sons were priests. So as we read that, so just quickly on that, who cares about the names of the officials? I think it speaks to us, shalom, big Old Testament word. We translate it peace. A lot of times we think of peace as the absence of conflict. It's also the presence of well-being. And you see here kind of two hands with David's rule and reign. You have this, he's a warrior, and he's defeating enemies. He's removing these guys who had oppressed Israel, and he's introducing order, and he's introducing righteousness. And he's introducing justice. He's created a cabinet to help him rule well. So that part of Israel dwelling in safety and security, it's not just that their enemies can't touch them; it's that the internal workings of their country are favorable to the people. So as we read that and you think, man, that's got no connection to me at all. I'm not an ROTC, I'm not a military guy, I don't, I don't connect to a list of countries. Even when I can see it as fulfillment... ...of God's promise. Maybe one thing that you can do, and sometimes this is a helpful way of looking at the Old Testament... ...many times things that are physical in the Old Testament are spiritual in the New. So from Genesis 3 onward, God's attempting to establish His kingdom on the earth. Genesis 1 and 2, things are great. Adam and Eve are co-ruling with God. Then, as David Scott talked about last week, they abdicated their role through their sin. And from Genesis 3 on, God is seeking to establish His rule and His reign on the earth. And the Old Testament is very physical... He takes a political nation, Israel, and says, Y'all are going to be my people, and here's the dirt that you're going to live on. And so their enemies are literally other nations. And they have swords, and they have bow and arrows, and they have horses. And they're coming to attack. Very literal and physical and material. In the New Testament, God is continuing to attempt to establish his rule and his reign. He's not giving us dirt, necessarily. We're not a political nation. He's not working through a country. He's working through his people, through the church, through spiritual Israel. And we have an enemy, but it's not other nations. It's the devil. And we have weapons, but they're not swords and bows and arrows. They're spiritual weapons. You can see a famous passage from Ephesians 6 where Paul is explaining this. and He's saying you're in a very real battle with a very real enemy. And there are weapons that you've been given by God in order to fight that. You see that there. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes our struggles not against flesh and blood but against all of these spiritual forces. So put on the armor of God so that when the day of evil comes you can stay in your ground and after you've done everything else to stand. And then 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we do have weapons but the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So, I would encourage you, think of 2 Samuel 8 and try to kind of, quote, spiritualize it. Run it through a New Testament grid which says it's not about a physical nation anymore. It's about the people of God, the church, and if you're following Jesus, you're a part of that. The battle is real, but it's spiritual, not physical. I have a real enemy, but not flesh and blood, and I have real weapons, but I can't hold on to them, I can't hold on to them in my, with, with my hands. So real quick, in the couple of minutes that we have left, let me give you a, 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 a couple of things to think about. To take home. One, if you're going to fight, you got to know who your enemy is. Do you know who your enemy is? Here's a hint. Your enemy is the devil. Explicitly in the New Testament. Your enemy, the devil. That's a quote. Your enemy does not have skin or bones. Your enemy doesn't bleed. If you're directing your frustration... Your anger, your ire, if you're directing that at anyone that you can see, then you're wrong. you're directing it in the it's the wrong person. you've missed the enemy as a, the church very is Christianity 101 and it is very difficult for us to to live out because some people are stupid and some people are wicked, and it's very easy to look at them and say, you're the problem. If I can get rid of you, if we can get rid of you, then things would run a whole lot better. People are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. If you don't hear anything else this morning, you hear that. People aren't the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And if you're directing any of that energy towards a person as your enemy, you're missing it. The devil just sits back and says, Great, that's great. Look at the history of the world. Pull out one weed, three more grow up in their place. We, we don't solve that, things don't get solved that way. The kingdom is not advanced by us taking out people, whether that's taking them out at the ballot box, or taking them out with a tank, or taking them out with a boycott. It doesn't change things spiritually, it doesn't change because we haven't dealt with our real enemy. We've dealt with a pawn at the the most. Your enemy is not ISIS. Your enemy is not a kid with an AK-47. Your enemy is not Donald Trump or Nick Saban. Your enemy is the (laughs) devil. Period. Don't fight anyone else. Fight him. He masquerades as an angel of light. How many of you are fooled by the $100 bill at the top? Not since you were three, right? The devil doesn't have a pitchfork and a pointy tail. He looks really, really good. That bill on the bottom is counterfeit. That's the one that fools us. We want to be discerning. Don't be scared. I want you to be discerning. We want to recognize who your enemy is, the devil. And you also want to recognize he's really good at what he does. Which is deceive people. He's been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. He has your number. He knows how to deceive us. Which is not to say that we're doomed to sin. But it's to recognize our enemy is not a cartoon. He's really good at what he does. We want to recognize that part of that is recognizing the battle. Do you recognize in your own heart the battle lines? Do you recognize the own battle lines in your life? The places where you're tempted. When Jesus was tempted, he was tempted to turn stones into bread. Would, any, would that get any of you? Doesn't get me at all. Never in my life have I looked at a rock and thought, Hey, I can make that into food. Never. Doesn't tempt me. Never been tempted to jump off a building and see if God will catch me. Those, those aren't temptations for me. Those were real temptations for Jesus. Do you know what the real temptations are for you? Do you know the handholds in your own heart that the devil can grab onto, you, onto? For some of you, the battle for you, it's all in your mind. Am I going to trust the Lord? Am I going to give in to fear and anxiety? You win and lose up here every day. For some of you, the battle's in your office. Are you going to flirt with her or him? Or Are you going to honor your vows? What are you going to do? For some of you, the battle's on your way home. Are you going to stop at the bar or are you going to go home? For some of you, the battle is online. What are you going to post or what are you going to look at? Who are you going to interact with? Ultimately, all of those things are just expressions of the sinful desires within our own hearts. But do you know where you're vulnerable? There, there's 100% truth that we are, can be and we are forgiven. Sometimes we hear that as permission to sin. It's okay because God will take care of it for me. I can always ask for forgiveness on the back end. I'm not even thinking about what that means relationally, but that's a complete, uh, you're misunderstanding the work of the devil who comes to steal and kill and destroy. You don't, you're playing with fire and you don't get it. Because God will forgive you, the consequences remain. You're, you're don't. You don't. You don't get in a cage with a lion. And that's what he is. I would strongly encourage you. Ask the Lord, show me my own heart. Show me the places in me where I'm weak. Most of you are not tempted to turn rocks into bread. Many of us are tempted to make ourselves look better than we really are. Many of us are tempted to look at someone else's life and say, I want that instead of what I have. Whether it's her, or whether it's the house, or whether it's the job. I want that over what I've got. Many of us are tempted to look to alcohol Or pornography or drugs or food to numb our pain or to deal with difficult circumstances? Do you know the battle lines in your own heart? Do you know the battle lines in your Marietta? Wherever God has planted you, do you recognize the places where the enemy is pushing back against the kingdom of God? God is trying to advance his rule and reign, and there's an organized resistance. And as a missionary, as one sent by God, planted by God in a place, you have a role in the battle. Do you even know what you're fighting against? Do you know in your Marietta, here in this city... There's a huge achievement gap in our schools, and the school systems working really hard to fix it. But white kids do a whole lot better than black kids and Hispanic kids. That's a justice issue. The the chairman for the Cobb commissioners is now recognizing there's no affordable housing in our county. That's a justice issue. Those are real issues. It's not even speaking to greed and immorality and the other kind of spiritual ills that we would say in your Marietta, whatever that happens to be, do you know the battle lines? Do you know the places where the enemy's winning? Do you know the places where God is winning? Do you know what it looks like for you to engage in those places? Wherever you put the pen out there on that map, God's calling you to fight there. But he's not calling you necessarily to. To fight with your hands, the weapons he gives us, and there's many of them in Ephesians 6. I told the guys at nine, I want a bow to dress up like a soldier with all of the armor on. That he said no. So, I'm joking. He probably would have said yes, fast, him. he probably didn't, wouldn't have a choice if I asked him guess So, here's some, here's three you can think about, real quick. I got two minutes. Actually, I don't. I have zero. I'm going to take three. So, prayer. The word, worship. The Bible, that's truth. When Jesus is tempted, what does he respond with? The Bible. If, if, if the enemy knows you're a follower of Jesus, if he masquerades as an angel of light, do you think the temptations may have a ring of truth to them? Yes. How important is it for you to know the truth better than he does? How, how, how much... More important is it for you to understand the full context of the Bible. Get into the word. Prayer, we've talked about that repeatedly over the past several months. Invite God in. It's so interesting to me. As you read Ephesians 6, what, what Paul says, which is not what I would think you would say to a soldier, is just stand there. That's it. You just stand firm. Here, put on all this armor and just stand there. And when you've done everything else, just stand there some more. It's, how, how do you win standing there? Because God's fighting for you. Prayer engages God in the battle. Please pray. Worship. Second Chronicles 20. It's a great story. A king named Jehoshaphat, an underutilized name in our day and time. He says to his people who have a huge army staring them in the face. It is an unwinnable battle. Massively outnumbered. A prophet says to him, God is going to deliver you. And so before the soldiers go out, they worship. And what the Bible says in Second Chronicles 20 is, at the sound of their worship, God set ambushes against their enemies. You think about that. Worship is warfare. One last takeaway. In your home, I would say particularly. You can do it in your office as well. In your homes. If there's stuff happening in your home and you don't love it, whether that's, maybe people are having nightmares, maybe there's... Of fighting and it just feels kind of icky to you, you don't love it. Worship in your home, don't just put on music, that's fine. Choose to engage, you don't have to include your kids if that's you don't have to do that. You can do that as parents. It's great if your kids are old enough to be engaged, but if they're not, don't worry about it. Do it while they're in school and do it when they go to bed. Just make a choice to worship, it's an atmosphere changer more than anything else I know. If you will make a choice in places that just feel particularly, feel like darkness is winning in some areas. Make a choice to worship and it will change the atmosphere. It's not magic, but what you're doing is you're engaging the Lord. And He will come in and He changes things. It's the difference between being a thermometer that reflects temperature and a thermostat that sets it. we got to go. I'm going to pray. God, I pray for the men and the women in this room, the 14-year-olds all the way up. I pray first that everybody would know the deep delight you take in them as sons and daughters. That above all things, you're pleased with them and you love them. Your desire is to be with them. God, I pray that each one of us from that place of security and identity would also say, I'm a missionary. My Father has planted me here He's given me business to do in this place. God, I pray that the men and women in this room would all have a sense of their sentness, their placed Even now, I pray, God, that you would speak to those gathered here. This is the place where I put you. For the vast majority of you, you don't have to move. A handful of you will need to move. Most of you won't. Where you are, whether you feel like God led you, where you are is where he's put you. Trust in the sovereignty of God. It's not about moving to a new location. Oftentimes it's just about opening our eyes to where God has placed us. God, my prayer between now and Easter is that in that place we would begin to fight. We would engage our real enemy. Not the paper targets that are put in front of us. And that we would engage with the weapons that you have given to us. God, and that we would see shifts in atmosphere and relationships and circumstances. God, my prayer for the men and women in this room, when, he, when we're sitting back on our rocking chairs and kind of looking back at our life, I pray we would all have a second Samuel chapter 8. We would have a catalog of victories won. A catalog of enemies defeated, not because... We're awesome, but because we're faithful to a God who is awesome and who is great and who fights on our behalf. God, as we close, I pray for any whose homes feel unsettled. Give them grace this week, I pray, as they engage. Would you change the the atmosphere in their home? Would you send us out in the power of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.